0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. Created by the change. The Hub is about impact.
1: The, the Hub is for everyone.
0: My name is Dr. Georgina Laragi. I work in the School of Histories and Humanities in the department in Trinity College. And I'd like to welcome everybody here this afternoon. It's a lovely, sunny afternoon before St. Patrick's Day and everybody gets a little bit of a break. Um, I'm delighted to introduce to you our speaker for this afternoon, Dr. Dara Gannon. Uh, We worked together many years ago in Maynooth University, and it's lovely to be able to to welcome him here and chair this session and to see all that has gone on in the intervening period with his um, with his scholarship. Dara is the head of Irish Studies at UCD in Dublin. He's the vice president of the Global Irish Diaspora Congress and the incoming O'Malley Residential Fellow at New York University. And he's published widely on the Irish diaspora and the Irish Revolution, including a book that came out of his work with the National Museum called Proclaiming a Republic Ireland 1916 and the National Collection that was published in 2016. The next one was Ireland 1922, Independence, Partition, Civil War with Fergal McGarry and um, a forthcoming volume towards the end of this year, I think, called Conflict, Diaspora and Empire, Irish Nationalism in Great Britain, 1912 to 1922. And he's currently completing a fourth book entitled Worlds of Revolution, Ireland's Global Moment 1919 to 1923. We're absolutely delighted to um, be able to sit here from the comfort of our own chairs, and listen to you talk today about inventing global Ireland, the idea and influence of the Irish race convention. But before Dara unmutes himself and starts, I would just like to remind everybody, if you have questions as we're going through, please feel free to put them in. You don't have to wait till the end but put them in in the Q&A section rather than the chat section. So we'll be monitoring that. Dara's going to speak for about 40, 45 minutes, and then we'll have time for questions. So I'll open the floor to you now, Dara. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, Georgina, for that really warm welcome. It's such a pleasure to be with you today at Trinity College uh, for this Contemporary Irish History Seminar. And such a Great pleasure to see Georgina again. COVID restrictions over the last number of years have meant that it's been impossible to meet uh, in person for for coffee as friends. So of course, I'm delighted that the Contemporary Irish History Seminar has brought us together, uh, digitally at least, uh, for this seminar. I'd like to particularly thank uh, Euna O'Halpin and Anne Dolan for their invitation to speak, and to the conveners of the Contemporary Irish History Seminar more widely um, for agreeing to host me. Um, And thanking, of course, Georgina, as I mentioned, for chairing um, well, it's, of course, great to see the uh, restrictions uh, ending and, and the moving away from um, digital uh, seminars. I think one of the benefits, of course, of this period of, uh, of Zoom-led digital seminars has been the integration um, of the Irish diaspora into academic and intellectual discourse uh, with seminars such as this. And I hope that that certainly um, uh, will continue uh, as we move forward into 2022 and beyond. Um, So I will begin. Over the course of the Irish Revolution, Irish nationalists around the world conceptualised and institutionalised the idea of a global Ireland. Between 1916 and 1921, Irish race conventions were convened successively in New York, 1916, Philadelphia, 1919, Melbourne, 1919, and Buenos Aires, 1921. The Irish Race Congress, held in Paris in January 1922, most impressively, was coordinated by Irish nationalist conference organisers in Pretoria, London, Dublin, and Toronto. I have had the World Conference of the Race idea in my mind for a long time, Eamon de Valera wrote in 1921. But what exactly was the idea of the Irish Race Convention? This paper charts the development of the Irish Race Convention as political concept. Where was the Irish Race Convention politically conceived? How did nationalists around the Irish world negotiate the ethnic tensions underlying this term? And what transnational influences did the Irish Race Convention exert during the Irish Revolution? To address these questions in turn is to reflect upon a broader range of conceptual and thematic approaches to the study of modern Ireland, advanced by scholars around the world. Charting future directions in the study of the global Irish, American-based historian Kevin Kenny concluded that, quote, wherever the Irish settled, nationalism became a means of expressing not only an ethnic, but also an international or a diasporic sense of Irishness that transcended any simple desire for acceptance in the host land. The development of diasporic sensibilities within nationally specific ethnic identities um, is an ideal subject for comparative inquiry. Unquote. The argument for decentering Irish historiography has been further developed by Canadian-based scholar Donald Akinson. Quote: Our mission should be to chart Irish nationalism as a small but not insignificant global cultural system. Unquote. Elsewhere, British-based scholar Enda Delaney has identified the theme of power as central to the negotiation of any Greater Ireland history. Quote, reconstructing the dynamics of power in late modern Ireland in all its multifaceted complexity will require a transnational approach, not least to investigate the ways uh, in which they operated in different ways in different environments, unquote. Surveying the field from New Zealand, finally, Angela McCarthy has underlined the analytical value of uh, networks by which to situate histories of Ireland in the world. Quote, communication exchanges flows of information, and the role of social networks are all fundamental." The salience of diasporic approaches and transnational themes in the scholarship of internationally based Irish historians, I would argue, is suggestive of alternative perspectives on Ireland fostered by scholarly distance from the island. Irish nationalists and centres around the world similarly 100 years ago, conceived their identity in terms of both global and national politics. The idea and influence of the Irish Race Convention connected the global and the local. So I first want to address the issue of the idea of the Irish Race Convention. If the influence of the Irish Race Convention, quote unquote, was global, its ideological base was American. The Irish American relationship with race has been the subject of extensive historiographical debate over the last 30 years. Scholars such as David Rudiger and Noel Ignatieff have explicated the 19th century Irish experience of migration to the United States as one of alienation. To overcome the barriers to assimilation, these scholars have argued, the Irish situated themselves within pre existing racial hierarchies in the United States, thereby becoming white recent scholarship has foregrounded Irish nationalism in America, presenting race as a more capacious category of analysis. In a study of mid-19th century Irish nationalism in America, Cian McMahon has argued that the idea of the Irish race was, quote, for the most part, a language of Celts and Saxons rather than Blacks and whites, because from the perspective of Irish migrants, the differences between the white races were just as important as those separating whites from people of color. Unquote. Bruce Nelson's study, *The Making of the Irish Race*, has presented race as a reflexive identity among Irish American nationalists. Quote: This discourse of race as color, um, as uh, this discourse of race as national and sometimes multinational character, coexisted with the more familiar discourse of race as color. David Brundage, finally, has discerned a, quote, significant change in the racial thinking, unquote, of Irish nationalists in America from the late 19th century towards accommodation with African-American activists. Therefore, the idea of the Irish Race Convention coexisted alongside many of these ideological strands of Irish nationalism in the United States. More significantly, however, The Irish Race Convention would come to define the influential identification of Irish-American nationalists with Ireland, America, and the global Irish diaspora. On the 4th of March 1916, 2,300 Irish-American delegates assembled in the Hotel Astor, New York, for two days of discussion under the banner of the Irish Race Convention. The issue of unity was a key motivating factor In the call for an Irish race convention. The First World War had divided the Irish nationalist movement in the United States. As the so-called leader of the Irish race, John Redmond nominally retained the support of the Irish in the United States. However, despite growing disillusionment with Redmond's endorsement of the British war effort, the United Irish League of America remained the predominant public manifestation of Irish nationalism, counting on 200 branches across the country. The New York-based Clan na bitterly opposed to Redmond's quote-unquote recruitment of Nationalist Ireland for the British war effort, were determined to unite Irish-Americans in support of an Irish Republic during the war. The holding of an Irish race convention would have forced the legitimacy of that political position. I am strongly opposed to admitting any but those whose sentiments are in accord with ours, one supporter wrote to John Devoy. The Convention will neither be the time nor the place to argue who is right or who is wrong, wrong. We are right and let the other fellows keep away, unquote. Absent the United Irish League, the delegates at the Convention denounced the Home Rule Movement, unifying instead around a new Republican-inspired organisation, the Friends of Irish Freedom. Within six months, the FYF had attracted almost 3,000 members. On the strength of the mandate given by the convention, F.M. Carroll has observed, constitutionalism was publicly rejected and a new basis was laid for revolutionary agitation. The Irish Race Convention thereafter would become the recognized political forum by which to unite Irish nationalist forces in the United States. For example, in the wake of the later Irish-American split between John Devoy and Eamon de Valera, Irish political leaders in America proposed holding an Irish Ways Convention to affect nationalist unity. The staging of the Irish Ways Convention in March 1916, moreover, was of strategic temporal importance. Devoy, who had been covertly meeting with German officials in New York, had financed Roger Caseman's expedition to Berlin with a view to securing German military aid for an Irish rebellion during the war. The significance of Devoy's interventions has been summarized authoritatively by Joe Lee No America no New York, no Easter Rising. The organisation of the Irish Race Convention marked a further intervention in preparations for the Rising. Assurances from Joseph Plunkett in September 1915 that a rebellion would soon take place prompted DeVoy to issue a national call for the Irish Race Convention three months later. Clan McGale colleagues, unaware of the impending Rising in Dublin, had been urging devoy to call a race convention since the beginning of the war. Further details of the rising arrived by IRB Courier in February of 1916, and in his remarks at the race Convention, Devoy proclaimed, quote, I not alone hope that Germany may decisively defeat England in both land and sea, but I hope that Ireland will contribute a reasonable share in bringing about that result, unquote. So the staging of the Irish Race Convention and the establishment of the Friends of Irish Freedom six weeks before the Rising ensured that the movement in Ireland would not be without support in the event of the rebellion, rebellion being de- defeated. The FOIS, indeed, would stage important public events at Madison Square Garden in New York, for example, in solidarity with the interned 1916 rebels, while Ireland re- remained under martial law in the months which followed the Rising. And indeed, I would argue, timing would remain a critical strategy in the staging of further Irish race conventions in the United States and elsewhere. Another Irish race convention was organised in New York in May of 1918 in sync with nationalist opposition to conscription in Ireland, which led to a petition for Ireland's right to self-determination issued on behalf of the the quote-unquote Irish race to Woodrow Wilson. So the formula, as I would put it, of the Irish Race Convention had been established. If Irish-American identity was publicly constructed in specific temporal contexts, as Timothy Maher has written of the Irish in Worcester, the idea of the Irish Race Convention in the United States was defined by public demonstrations of ethnic unity and nationalist solidarity. In the aftermath of the First World War, the idea and influence of the Irish Race Convention would extend beyond the boundaries of Irish America throughout the Irish world. So we're going to use this interactive map to chart the development of Irish race conventions across the Irish world over uh, this period and show the kind of the links between Irish diaspora communities using that totem, which is the Irish Race Convention throughout the revolutionary period. So the inaugural meeting of Dáil Éireann on the 21st of January 1919 and the establishment of the Department of Foreign Affairs in April provided an Irish focus to the idea of global Ireland. The issue of a message to the free nations of the world and a declaration of independence couched in the Wilsonian rhetoric of self-determination offered initial promise to the aspiration of international recognition of the Irish Republic. Dáil Éireann TDs, Sean O'Kelly and George Gavin Duffy were dispatched to Versailles accordingly. Elsewhere, an Irish self determination league was set up in Great Britain. Eamon de Valera, indeed, had been the motivating force behind issuing a public call to this effect. And he stated quote, League yourselves together so that flung worldwide though we are, we may all act together in cooperative unison. Irish men and Irish women are doing their duty nobly, though they suffer. "'Children of the Irish race in England unite and assist them.'" However, it would be a further year before the self-determination for Ireland League of Canada and Newfoundland was established in Montreal and a further two years before the Irish self-determination League of Australia was formed in Sydney. So the legitimation of Ireland's case before the Paris Peace Conference required immediate global influence and recognisable political imprint. It would be the Irish Race Convention rather than the Irish Self-Determination League, which would become the defining global brand of Irish nationalism in 1919. So we move to Philadelphia. On the 22nd of February 1919, the Friends of Irish Freedom convened the third Irish Race Convention in the United States in just over four years. Taking place in Philadelphia, the Cradle of American Liberty The event was organised to coincide with Woodrow Wilson's convening of the Paris Peace Conference. And in this political context, Irish nationalists in the United States were best placed to lobby Wilson to facilitate the entry of Dahl Aaron's representatives to Versailles. To give that lead the necessary political direction and force, Dahl envoy to the US, Patrick McCartan, noted, Joseph McGarity urged that a race convention should be summoned at once. The Philadelphia-based Clan Le leader was determined that the race convention would be as representative as possible of the Irish American community. Quote, we should go carefully over the list of delegates so as to pick out men from various states and sections not now represented, even one name left out may do great harm, unquote. Attended by over 5,000 delegates from across the United States, the convention was intended not only to demonstrate the breadth of Irish-American support for the Irish Republic, but to reinforce the ethnic standing and racial respectability for Irish-Americans. I should point out that this picture is actually from the 1916 convention um, in New York, but it shows the kind of, the, the, the um, scale of the event uh, in New York in 1916. And again, in 1919, we've got twice this number sitting in, con- uh, in conference to discuss these issues. Um, I should also state it's quite interesting how many of these Irish race conventions ended up being held in five-star hotels. Um, I'm sure there was a culturally symbolic reason for that, but nonetheless worth noting. Um, So issuing resolutions in favour of self-determination for Ireland, delegates invoked their American citizenship before their Irish nationality. In doing that, President of the Friends of Irish Freedom, Daniel Gohalan, stated, quote, We are acting as Americans first, unquote. Delegates used the platform of the Irish Race Convention further to chronicle the racial discrimination which the Irish had historically experienced in American society. Quote, because of the incessant propaganda for the last 50 or 60 years, they came to America handicapped as no other race comes to America and that therefore an Irishman must have twice or three times the brain of his fellow citizens, in order to get along and overcome that handicap." unquote. So the 1919 convention in Philadelphia was represented as the apotheosis of the Irish race in America. So while 19th century migrants might be characterized in the convention as, quote, the great animals for the American labor market, the best blood of our people uh, being thrown on the slave market of America, Unquote. Attention was now called to the, quote, high place which the Irish race has won throughout the country, unquote. Indeed, to read the resumes of the various speakers at the convention, such as Cardinal Gibbons, Justice Gadigan, Congressman Gallagher, the conference chairman was describing delegates as amongst, quote, the distinguished citizens of the West, And a delegation of those distinguished citizens of the West, among them former mayor of Chicago, Edward Dunn, and former chairman of the National War Labour Board, Frank P. Walsh, were thereafter deputed to present the resolutions of the Irish Race Convention before Woodrow Wilson. Now, the magnitude of the Race Convention caught the attention of the American public. The events in Philadelphia were widely reported in the American press, for example, and resolutions from ordinary Americans in support of the Irish Race Convention's aims uh, were further sent to U.S. congressmen. Such was the strength of public reaction to the Race Convention that this was noted at the White House. Writing on the 1st of March, President Wilson's private secretary, Joseph Tumulty, advised the president, quote, during the past few days, all men of all races have come to me urging me to request you to see this committee," unquote. Wilson, who was en route to New York um, during a break in the Peace Conference, had already discerned the impact of the race Convention, quote, "'Every day we receive resolutions of this, conf- of this kind, regardless of what we may think of Justice Cochalin and his crowd, there is a deep desire on the part of the American people to see the Irish question settled," unquote. The ethnic unity and racial respectability invoked by the Irish Race Convention conferred upon it a political legitimacy in American terms. Its timing further leveraged contemporary political events. Wilson, consequently, would agree to meet the Irish Race Convention delegates in Paris, acknowledging the significance of their representations of Irish self-determination. Quote, you have touched upon the great metaphysical tragedy of today, unquote. Now, the Irish Race Convention was not only communicating the influence of the Irish in America, its title also proffered a diasporic identity which transcended Irish American politics. The Irish Race Convention in Philadelphia, for example, was projected as an exemplar to be followed by Irish nationalist communities around the world. At the conclusion of its proceedings, a cablegram was sent to Thomas Ryan, the premier of Queensland, quote, this convention is a call of the blood It reaches out to every land and it shows to the world today the united race demand absolute independence for Ireland, that the Irish race of the world over is a power that must be reckoned with, unquote. A further resolution was issued to Archbishop Mannix in Victoria, quote, This cablegram is more than a message from you to a distinguished prelate at the other side of the globe. It is a clarion call to Irishmen all the world over, unquote. And public communication with Irish nationalists in Australia invoked both the diasporic identity of the Irish Race Convention and also its global influence as a transnational network of Irish nationalist organisation. The realisation of these transnational ideas depended on the response of Irish nationalists all over the world. There has been for some time a widespread feeling that we should hold an Australasian Irish Race Convention Along the lines of the great convention held uh, some months ago at Philadelphia, Archbishop Mannix wrote to Bishop Michael Kelly in Sydney in September 1919 The time has come for Australia and New Zealand to take their stand by the side of America. And to follow Mannix's lead, we will now return to our map and to Melbourne. So The Irish Race Convention in Melbourne was organised for the 3rd of November, 1919, with the stated purpose of, quote, pressing to a conclusion, the matter of self-determination for Ireland, unquote. The nationalist position of the Irish in Australia and New Zealand is quite interesting because it's quite unclear in late 1919 as to what the state of politics is, unlike the definitive uh, state of politics in Ireland after the 1918 general election. Uh, And the idea of home rule self-government, for example, which had generated political movements in Australia since the 1880s, remained officially the stated public objective of nationalists in the Antipodes. It was notable indeed that the Sinn Féin-inspired Irish uh, National Association failed to become a mass political organization in Australia, even in the aftermath of the 1918 general election. The Sinn Féin Rebellion, so-called, and the controversial battles over conscription waged between Archbishop Mannix and Australian Prime Minister Billy Hughes very often conflated the idea of self-determination with the disloyalty of the Irish Republic in the minds of the Australian public in particular. Indeed, Patrick uh, Farrell has described Sinn Féin as, quote, one of the languages of controversy, unquote, in Australia during the First World War. Uh, And the Irish Race Convention was organised in part to legitimate the demand for Sinn Féin and indeed for Irish self-determination. Now the convention was attended by over 1,000 delegates from Australia and New Zealand and opened by Archbishop Mannix. And the necessity to clarify the position of the Irish in Australia was reinforced by T.J. Ryan, who chaired the proceedings. Quote, this is a time when we in Australia uh, should speak in language which not only can be understood, but which cannot be misunderstood, unquote. Delegates at the Convention framed their support for Irish self-determination in terms of loyalty to the Commonwealth accordingly. The Anzac experience specifically was employed to emphasise the loyalty of the Irish in Australia. JT Murphy, the New South Wales representative, averred that, quote, we Australians of Irish birth will stand loyal to the sacrifices of our fellows, and see if if it is in our power to do it that Ireland is granted the same privilege for which Australians fought and died. Representations of ethnic sacrifice and imperial loyalty served as a prelude to the issue of resolutions asserting Ireland's right to self-determination. Quote, we here, enjoying the full fruits of self-government and living 716,000 miles away from Ireland, get the true perspective of Ireland's self-determination the Tasmanian representative, Charles O'Connor, concluded. We can render a service to the empire by using our weight and influence in endeavouring to heal the running sore that exists in the centre of the empire. So the Irish Race Convention in Australia was an exercise in political citizenship. A rally of 150,000 Melburnians in Fitzroy Gardens later that evening illustrated the point emphatically. And again, I think this idea of choreographed Irish race conventions all over the world is even represented in this somewhat grainy picture. Unfortunately, the best that could be found, where, again, we've got thousands of attendees uh, who are being urged to look straight into the camera. And of course, these images are being sent around the world, um, just like the images from the Irish race conventions in New York and Philadelphia. Um, So there's an element of of choreography of a very highly sophisticated nature um, in 1919. The Race Convention, however, was not only intended for Australian public consumption. Archbishop Mannix had coordinated the event with the view to signalling the support of Irish nationalists in the Antipodes to policymakers in the imperial metropole. And the London dailies, indeed, could have covered the Irish Race Convention as an event of imperial significance. The London Times, for example, reported that reports have been telegraphed from Melbourne of an event with an important bearing on empire politics the gathering from all parts of the continent of 2,000 delegates to an Irish race convention, unquote. Um, Now, the resonance of the events in Melbourne alone prompted the Governor-General of Australia to wire the Secretary of State for the Colonies in London, state, quote, I have the honour to bring to your Lordship's notice what is described as the Australasian Irish Race Convention. The convention was attended by the whole of the Roman Catholic archbishops and bishops in Australia and New Zealand, unquote. The Australian Commonwealth Government, the uh, head of the um, Home Office Directorate of Intelligence, Basil Thompson, reported to the British cabinet were considering in fact taking legal action against the organisers of the race convention for the circulation of what they called disloyal Irish propaganda within the Commonwealth. And the Assembly of Irish Nationalists in Australia Uh, and New Zealand, under the banner of the Irish Race Convention, I would argue, was intended to arrest the attention of policymakers across the British world. Furthermore, the holding of an Irish Race Convention was intended to communicate the strength and connectivity of the global Irish diaspora. The final resolution agreed upon by the convention in Melbourne was a message to Eamon de Valera, who of course was now in the United States. Quote, we in Australia send our message across the leagues of ocean to tell de Valera and the people who support him that we stand behind them in that great cause of freedom that we are fighting today. Unquote. And this resolution quite clearly reciprocated the message received from the Irish Race Convention in Philadelphia several months earlier, and again signified the communication of otherwise distant diaspora communities. And this was recognized in North America. Um, The Irish-American press, for example, highlighted this transnational connection and in fact urged the Irish in Canada to follow in the footsteps of the Irish in the US and Australia by also staging an Irish race convention. Uh, And such a convention was planned to take place in Montreal in November of 1921 to be attended by Irish nationalists from Great Britain, Australia and South Africa in order to, quote, focus public attention on the solidarity of the race and its determination to sustain Ireland in the fight." However, it would be in South America, not North America, where the idea of the Irish Race Convention was next transposed. So we will return to our map and I'll bring you to Buenos Aires. So Irish migration to South America had been recurrent throughout the 19th century, Between 40,000 and 50,000 Irish people migrated to Argentina and Uruguay over this period alone. A significant number of those who settled in Argentina were middle-class farmers, the estancieros, so-called, who purchased large ranches cheaply on the fertile land along the River Plate. Migrants from the Midlands were particularly noticeable among the Irish in Argentina, the consequence of decades of chain migration, and the most prominent of these of course, uh, was um, William Bolfin, who was born in Offaly and who published his experiences in Tales of the Pampas or Cuentos de la Pampa, if your uh, Spanish suits you. His Buenos Aires born son, Eamon, would later be appointed as Doleran envoy to Argentina in 1920. Eamon de Valera himself took considerable interest in leveraging the Irish community uh, in Argentina um, and the governments of the Latin republics on behalf of the Irish Republic going so far as to countenance a South American tour. Now, the significance to which de Valera attached this South American project was evidenced by his appointment of the Westmeath-born Lawrence Skinnell and Patrick Little as dual envoys to Argentina in the summer of 1921. And i have give a picture here of Patrick Little on the right, but I've also included his wife, Alice Ginnell, who I think because of her um, fluency in Spanish was a major um, aid to the Irish Republic, in South America in um, 1921. And I should point out that there's some excellent work being done on the Irish in Argentina by a number of early career scholars, uh, most notably Paul Hughes and and Anne-Marie O'Brien, who focus on Lawrence and Alice Ginnell, um, respectively. The principal mission for which Ginnell uh, and Little were tasked was the raising of the doll loan in South America. The Irish communities in Latin America, it was hoped, would raise 500,000 pounds for Doll Erin. Based in Buenos Aires, however, little was less sanguine. Quote, I had one day in Rio de Janeiro, but it was enough, as there are are only a handful of Irish there. Paraguay is very poor and in an unstable condition, as they had a revolution not so long ago. Peru, there is only one doubtful Irishman actually discovered. Uruguay, which although so near to the Argentine and so rich, has no Irish from there to make any attempt to approach or get in touch with the diplomatic mission at Buenos Aires, unquote. The principal challenge, as it turned out, facing the success of the Dahl loan in Argentina was not geography, but social class. Um, And Patrick Little mentions this in his reports back to Dahl Aaron in Dublin. He states, the idea which works much against an Irish mission is that we only come here for money, and that we don't care a jot about what happens to the Irish, unquote. And this, of course, was the predominant outlook of the Irish rancher class. The floating of the doll alone, Little concluded, could, not, could only succeed, excuse me, in Argentina through, quote, the idea of race pride, love of traditions and Irish dead, and Irish culture and the future of the Irish race, unquote. And this led, obviously, to the creation or convening of an Irish race convention. And this was held in Buenos Aires on the 29th of November, 1921. Attended by 90 delegates, the event was chaired by Lawrence Ginnell, who addressed the lack of organization in the Irish-Argentine community and the best means of levying the support of the Argentine population for the Irish cause. He criticized those present for their, quote, almost complete lack of knowledge about Irish life, unquote. The Irish loan, however, was successfully issued at the meeting and five delegates were appointed to represent Argentina at the Irish Race Congress in Paris in January 1922. The Irish Race Convention in Buenos Aires, indeed, would serve as a rallying cry for the organization of the Irish in South America more broadly. Um, And this led, for example, to the creation of a bespoke Irish bulletin, El Bulletin Irlandés, which was published and circulated throughout South America in late 1921. Furthermore, in response to the Irish Race Convention, delegates from Argentina, Brazil, Chile, and Mexico would depart South America to attend the Irish Race Congress in Paris. And here we come to our final destination. I was gonna leave this open for a moment. So the Irish Race Congress held in Paris between the 21st and 28th of January, 1922 was significant of the global scope but national differences inherent in the concept of the Irish Race Convention. The Race Congress was originally proposed by the Irish Republican Association of South Africa, which had been established in Pretoria in 1920, and from the viewpoint of Irish nationalists on the Cape, Ireland appeared on the horizon a worldwide Irish community. Quote, it is not the Ireland of four millions that we are thinking of now, we are thinking also of the Greater Ireland, the Magna Hibernia across the seas, the millions of Irish people throughout the world, unquote. The discourse of Irish nationalists in South Africa soon shifted from ideas of global Ireland to its potential strategic influence. Writing to Art O'Brien, who was the leader of the Irish Self-Determination League in London in March 1921, um, the honorary secretary of the Irish Republican Association of South Africa, Eugene Scallon, advised, quote, we feel that there is a danger of deadlock in the war of independence. The summoning of a world conference of the Irish race at this juncture to support the just claim of Ireland would be a dramatic stroke which could not fail to influence political opinion everywhere." Unquote. O'Brien was in complete agreement writing to Eamon de Valera in favour of this diasporic initiative. The ISDL and IRSA would collaborate over the next six months with the view to co-hosting the Irish Race Congress in a neutral country, either Paris or Madrid or The Hague. The most effective political strategy underpinning the Irish Race Congress, its South African organisers emphasised, lay in its presentation as an initiative of the global Irish diaspora. Quote, It will be obvious that the moral force behind this appeal will be immeasurably greater if the convocation were the result of a spontaneous effort, rather than if it could be regarded as merely the meeting of Irish exiles convened by one of the belligerents, namely dal Éireann, in this difficult situation that has arisen. The first essential for success, namely spontaneity and detachment from Irish control, would otherwise be absent," unquote. The Doll Department of Foreign Affairs, however, soon took charge over the convening of the Irish Race Congress to the marginalization of its original organizers. De Valera had selected the Canadian-born Irish nationalist, Catherine Hughes, to coordinate the Irish Race Congress to be held in Paris, in January 1922, and you can see Catherine Hughes uh, taking notes as secretary during the Congress with de Valera speaking from the platform. Um, Hughes had previously established the self-determination for Ireland League of Canada and accompanied de Valera on a southern tour of the US before being redeployed by de Valera to Australia and New Zealand, where she established the self-determination leagues in those countries. Arriving in Paris in September 1921, she would establish the Central Secretariat of the Irish Race Congress in the Grand Hotel, there's that five-star hospitality yet again, liaising directly with de Valera and the Department of Foreign Affairs in Dublin. And quite interestingly, she was very self-consciously a global Irish nationalist. She later described herself as a, quote, once upon a time Canadian, unquote. Now the potential for the Race Congress to contribute to the resolution of the ongoing British-Irish conflict was heightened in the summer of 1921, I would argue, with the declaration of a military truce in the War of Independence. It was in the sphere of international diplomacy that the diaspora card could best be deployed to Irish nationalist advantage. The global significance of Ireland's diaspora had been acknowledged in the initial proposals prepared by the British cabinet in July, 1921 while Basil Thompson reported to the cabinet on the influence of Irish-American nationalists over De Valera's positioning on negotiations. The British negotiating team evidently expected the influence of the global Irish diaspora to be raised by the plenipotentiaries in view of the impending race congress. However, in the official accounts of the negotiations, only Michael Collins is on record as having addressed the issue. In a memorandum on a new League of Nations entitled international aspects of the Anglo-Irish settlement, Collins remarked, quote, Ireland is herself a mother country with worldwide influence, unquote. Now, while it's often asked why de Valera did not go to London, perhaps the greatest missed opportunity of the Anglo-Irish treaty negotiations, in fact, was de Valera's failure to include a representative of Ireland's diaspora community among the plenipotentiaries again signalling Ireland's global influence. The signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty on the 6th of December 1921, before the race congress had taken place, sidelined the potential influence of global Ireland. Between the 21st and the 28th of January 1922, 100 Irish nationalist delegates um, descended on Paris from 22 countries. The representatives of the Self-Determination for Ireland League of Canada and the American Association for the Recognition of the Irish Republic ultimately refused to travel to Paris in the belief that the division of opinion would nullify the Congress and its effectiveness. For those who did attend, the failure to refer to to the Irish Race Congress before signing the Anglo-Irish Treaty was the first item on the agenda. Opening his remarks, Reverend Dr. O'Reilly commented of the Australian delegation, quote, we have come from the ends of the earth, and it has taken a long time to do it. When we left Australia, it was taken for granted that the main purpose to be served by this Congress was that this meeting of the Irish, assembled from all the seas of the world, would be the most powerful lever for the effecting of the surrender of Dublin Castle. Unquote. Art O'Brien, uh, representing London, captured the disillusionment of many in attendance from around the world. Quote, it is unfortunate that by an accident, we were not called upon to do something which we should have been called upon to do at this time." Without their original political objective, delegates turned their attentions to coordinating the global development of Irish culture and heritage, which of course is the subject of an excellent project led by Ciarán O'Neill and Billy Shortall at uh, Trinity College Dublin and Seeing Ireland. I really recommend those of you who haven't seen the uh, virtual 3D exhibition to take the opportunity to do so after this paper, of course. The compiling of an Irish dictionary of biography, the return of Irish manuscripts from imperial institutions and the establishment of university chairs in Irish history around the world were discussed by delegates who eventually agreed to set up a new global organisation to pursue these matters, Fina The committee of the worldwide organisation ultimately would only include one representative from Ireland, one representative from the US and three representatives from Great Britain. The clearest divisions arose, however, not over the Anglo-Irish Treaty, but in the different national allegiances and ethnic identities invoked in the name of the Irish race. Returning to the podium, Father O'Reilly from Australia adverted to the national loyalties of the Irish in Australia, quote, we must frankly and unequivocally accept the nationality of the country we are living in. It would be a vain thing for me to ask any young Australian to be an Irishman first and an Australian after, unquote. The representative from the Cape framed activism on behalf of the Irish race in terms of citizenship. Quote, we took our stand as South African citizens. We who come from abroad come here owing an undivided political allegiance to the country of our permanent residence. Other representatives, however, rejected identifications with the Irish race in terms of a transnational citizenship. Patrick Little commented of the Irish experience in South America, quote, you have the, them, the Irish, far away. This community fighting continually against absorption into a very attractive civilization, namely the Spanish civilization of South America, unquote. And the delegation from Great Britain were most vociferous, perhaps most obviously, in their opposition to a correlation between residency and citizenship. So in bringing together Delegates from across the Irish world, I would argue, the Irish Race Congress served to highlight the innate differences in national outlook between its diaspora communities. Removed from these tensions, delegates from Ireland were rendered silent observers to this diaspora-led discourse. You must be patient with us who have come from distant places, one American delegate advised the onlooking Countess Markovitz but we have to tell you of certain things that we have to encounter and that we are encountering all the time, unquote. Tensions between nationalists from Ireland and its diaspora, however, would emerge over the course of the week-long Congress. Membership of the new Fine Gael executive caused dissension among non-Anglophone delegates, the Brazilian representative proposing that Sinn Féin TD Michael Hayes should resign for the committee, to which the latter tersely replied, quote, I will not be interrupted by a Brazilian from Ireland." Others were dissatisfied that Eamon de Valera had not allowed for sufficient representation from diaspora communities outside North America and Britain. There are about 600 in France. There is an organization complete in Chile. I want Brazil to be in. The predominance of Irish island voices and issues was reinforced on the last day of the proceedings wherein pro- and anti-treaty delegates exchanged barb comments over the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Quote, the only thing we have to do is to agree to disagree, de Valera remarked to Owen McNeil. Several items on the agenda there- thereafter, including the location of the next race Congress, went unresolved. For diaspora-based delegates who had travelled weeks and thousands of miles to be at Paris, the internecine disputes over the minutiae of the Anglo-Irish Treaty were deeply underwhelming. A representative from Brazil would intervene in the rerun of the treaty debates commenting, quote, we are treated here at this conference as if we were little children, quote. The signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty before the Irish Race Congress had convened in Paris ultimately undermined the political influence of global Ireland over the Irish question, and this waning political influence of the Irish Race Convention idea, was captured sharply in the New York Times. Quote, the Irish Race Congress at Paris was called long before the settlement with Great Britain. Its intention was undoubtedly to stir up international feeling in favour of Ireland and to set flowing new streams of anti-English propaganda. Whether in Paris or Dublin or New York, sensible Irishmen must be aware that the final test of their capacity to govern themselves is now upon them the only Irish Race Congress which the world will note or long remember is not the one in Paris, but the one in Dublin, unquote. The the Anglo-Irish Treaty, to conclude, reduced the Irish Race Congress to a cultural exhibition of global Ireland. However, as Gerard Kion has noted, it is surely too simplistic to represent the Irish Race Conference as an altruistic, if naive, South African scheme wrecked by Republican saboteurs, unquote. The divisions which defined the Irish Race Congress were not between pro and anti-treaty positions, but the differences of perspective on the idea of the Irish race on the part of nationalists all over the world. The idea of a cohesive diasporic nationalism which brought delegates together under the banner of the Irish Race Congress was underwritten by distinct nation-centered views on citizenship, ethnicity and nationality. The differences in discourse between delegates from Ireland and those among its diaspora further underline a significant ideological cleavage in the Irish nationalist experience. The Congress in Paris marked a break in the idea and influence of the Irish Race Convention. So, to conclude, the Irish Race Convention. Was politically conceived in the United States, but would become the totemic representation of Irish nationalist influence around the world between 1919 and 1922. The Irish Race Convention sought to construct and mobilize a global diasporic Irish identity, but it struggled to subsume ethnic discourses specific to each host nation within this vision. America, race. Australia, empire. Argentina, class. Irish nationalists invoked the political idiom of the Irish Race Convention at strategic moments, with the view to influencing national and international policymakers. The organization of the Irish Race Congress in Paris by Irish nationalists in South Africa and Great Britain, parallel to the Irish to the Anglo-Irish treaty negotiations, constituted the most significant attempt to leverage the influence of global Ireland on behalf of the Irish Republic. The political oversight of Dublin and the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty in London effectively undermined the potential political intervention of the Irish Race Congress in Paris. The idea of the Irish Race Convention, nonetheless, exerted significant transnational influence. The organisation of Irish Race Conventions in Philadelphia, Melbourne and Buenos Aires attested to the development of a global network of Irish nationalists mobilized as much by diasporic connections and identities as Irish island influences. The Irish Race Congress signified the apogee of this global Irish movement. The gathering of representatives from 22 countries ultimately reinforced the global scope and great divergences on issues of citizenship, ethnicity, and nationality, which defined Irish nationalism around the world. A century on, the ideas and influences of global Ireland remain open to historical inquiry and contestation. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Dara. That was fascinating, um, entertaining and very provocative. Um, We have a number of questions which I'll get to in a minute, but I was wondering, could you talk about the one doubtful Irishman of Paraguay. <laughs> is there anything more on that that just struck me as curious? Just to easy into the questions.
1: It, it, it is an interesting kind of uh, uh, description, all right. Uh, I guess the, 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 there's no more details given. These are in the Gannell papers in the National Library of Ireland. Um, and Patrick Little has a report to this effect. I think the DIFP have also... Um, Uh, Capture this on their website. Um, But I suppose it really highlights in respect of of, of identity, how Irish-born nationalists defined uh, citizenship, Irish identity, uh, and racial identity. And so there is perhaps in that um, description a suggestion perhaps of perhaps a Spanish or a South American-born uh, activist who, even in racial terms, may not have been white, and and so I think you're quite correct to bring up the kind of coded language within some of those descriptions, which are, are very uh, subtle, but which suggest again those tensions between island and diaspora interpretations of race.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that's one of the things that we're all learning about as we grapple with race, kind of uh, both in daily life but also uh, from an academic perspective, how subtle. Our understandings and people's descriptions and um, kind of kind of public discourse is around the idea of race at all. But it was really interesting how you intersected it with class, I thought, for Argentina Um, and then empire. And then, but and you mentioned some of the women involved. So I'm wondering: is is there anything more to be said about the intersection between these issues and gender and the the race convention gender? Because lo- just looking from a visual point of view at the the images you have, the people not only are they in five star hotels, but they're also predominantly men, which is not that unsurprising. But is there anything? To add in relation to the, the kind of relationship between these race conventions and gender or women's politicization at the time?
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I would say that more broadly, before I answer your question directly, I think more broadly, if you if you look at the Irish diaspora, specifically during the revolutionary period, that women have more agency outside of Ireland, uh, certainly in terms of foreign affairs. Um, Catherine Hughes is someone who I've mentioned before, but you also have more on um, Nancy Weiss Power in Berlin, who were given positions of responsibility by the Department of Foreign Affairs, or because of their linguistic ability, they assume positions of responsibility, uh, and of course, Alice cannell is an example of that, because of her proficiency in Spanish, she was very uh, adept at negotiating um, and mediating in South American communities. I think an element of this, to your point, is that um, The projection of, and you you quite correctly allude to the images, which I was very conscious of as well when I was presenting these, that the race conventions are presenting, especially in the United States, they're trying to represent the Irish American race or the Irish race more broadly as the most uh, recognisable, respectable versions of, of, of community, and because of the gendered hierarchies in public, Spaces at that time, that usually meant men uh, were presented on platforms and presented in photographs, as I've shown, and their resumes, such as in the United States, were listed ad nauseum. And, you know, the fact that they were lawyers, the fact that they were congressmen and so on, gave them a position of privilege um, and also, uh, you know, suggested the kind of respectability of Irish ethnicity, which... Um, wasn't perhaps as apparent for for women, for example, uh, in Irish America at that time, because again, those gender hierarchies in the public sphere. So I do think there's definitely a gender dimension to this, uh, and, and in many respects, Irish nationalists were acting in terms of yes, the gendered norms of their day, but I think they were also operating on the level of propaganda. And again, this is a global effort; they're trying to communicate power to policymakers and in, in, in Westminster, in the White House and beyond, and in the vernacular, I guess, of, of, you know, the 1910s and 1920s, they were um, espousing not only that this was, uh, you know, a male-dominated politics, but it was a white male-dominated politics as well. Mm. Yeah. Excellent. There's a couple of questions and I'm, I'm going to try and order
0: them um in terms of how they help us understand more fully kind of what you're talking about. So there's a couple of questions from Patrick Moore, which I'm going to get to. But Seamus Moriarty has asked kind of very, 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 very good, but very basic question almost in that um so about the kind of the technicalities of all this. Organising the race conventions must have been expensive and taken a lot of administration. Who financed these? And was there a secretariat in situ to do the organising?
1: Um, that's an excellent question. And the, the the Secretariat that I mentioned regarding the Irish Waste Congress in Paris was supported by the DFA, um, of course. So that was kind of a, a you know, Dáil Éireann assumed basically the, the logistical responsibilities, but um, devolved those to Catherine Hughes, primarily in Paris the race conventions which took place then in um for example Philadelphia Melbourne and uh, Buenos Aires were really the responsibility of Irish nationalists in those respective countries um in the case of the friends of irish in the case of Philadelphia for example in 1919 the friends of irish freedom um were basically uh, the responsible party and they would have raised money during the war for example the victory fund uh, to support the prisoners um after the 1916 Rising to support the 1918 General Election, and so on, so they would have used some of that money to um, allow for their delegates to stay in those five-star hotels. Um, but uh, I, I, and I think that's also an element of again representing oneself as kind of of money. Uh, you know, there's a prestige associated with those with those kind of things, um, the race conventions, and 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 as I mentioned as well. They were also in America, where politics was so fractious, especially during the First World War, and um, they were seen to be important to present the unity of Irish America under the auspices of the Friends of Irish Freedom. So they spared no expense because they felt that this would give them the political um, um, edge over the Home Rule United Irish League. And um, so this was really an exercise in, in propaganda for international consumption, but also to bring diverging uh, ethnic um,
0: uh, politics together. Oh, well, loads of questions now after all that. <laughs> um, but I am um, a good answer to the question. Um on this, Patrick Mom has asked a kind of a question, which also let I will extend it out to 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 include my question as well. So Patrick wonders: could the old Clanning Ale conventions held in the US be seen as a prototype for the race conventions? And in tandem with that, I was wondering. Because some of the coverage mentions these monster meetings, and m- most familiar to most of us are the monster meetings of the eighteen twenties and thirties, and Daniel O'Connell. And you mentioned heads of intelligence, British heads of intelligence, and um, being very alive to the dangers posed across the empire with these monster meetings in the in the um, early twentieth century. To what extent then is um, the race convention a kind of a more modern? Um, Iteration of a, a strategy that dates back quite a while that was used to unsettle the British and how it's kind of been overlaid. Um, so it's, it's it's traveling much like the empire and the diaspora across the globe.
1: I think those are really interesting questions and observations by Patrick and yourself. To 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 the point of that the that this is a proto the prototype of the earlier clan Gael and. Um, Congre- conventions. I think that's really interesting. It's not something that I've looked at extensively in the sense of I've focused on the revolutionary period more broadly, and they do s- seem to speak to each other, those events, um, in quite distinctive and quite proximate ways. But I do think certainly that in terms of Irish-American politics, that those earlier Klan um conventions would certainly suggest that there was an earlier prototype and um, that certainly John DeVoy would have been um, eager to, to use and certainly would have lent... Um, uh, a longevity to the legitimacy of of those conventions that this is something they'd done before uh, and that they were um, that they you know they are familiar to Irish American nationalists and to go back to the earlier point regarding mass demonstrations and rallies uh, and especially the land league and so on I think that's perhaps an underwritten aspect of global Ireland in its broadest sense beyond the scope of of this paper, even this idea of maybe modes of activism, modes of political participation and mobilization, which um, certainly transcend the Irish Revolution. And and to look at, for example, the idea of how transnational activists created these kind of of continuities uh, around um, diaspora communities by virtue of either traveling themselves. So someone like Michael David is a very good example, who was someone who was a transnational activist, And so his involvement in, for example, the Land League movement in the United States and his travels to Australia, I'm sure would offer a precedence in that respect, Um, but also newspapers. Uh, And I think one of the critiques and criticisms of, uh, of global history more broadly has been that, well, it focuses only on people who move, on the cosmopolitan, on the middle class, on those who leave records, but People in Ireland, um, going back to the reading rooms of the Land League movement and so on, were reading collectively about what was happening around the world. And similarly, in diaspora communities, you have people who are reading. Um, I mean, there are Irish Studies libraries, you know, contemporary Irish Studies libraries, which I've used and been had the advantage of visiting in places like Melbourne, the American Irish Historical Society in New York, where people were gathering to read about. Irish nationalism around the world so I think reading culture is really important to do this to to, to exemplify these issues and just one final point I think we do need to look at what you said intelligence reports and how they're picking up on the power of of those kind of modes of communication which transcended the the island I mean just on a very practical level Ireland between 1919 and 1921 um, was under the rigors of the Defence of the Realm Act Dublin Castle ensured the Dáil Éireann was um, prohibited it was very difficult to have public um, platforms and mass rallies. And so these conferences, these conventions become um, alternative fora for the discussion of issues of Irish democracy, Irish sovereignty. And so I've argued elsewhere that while Dal Aaron in the commemorative mind has gained, 21st of January of 1919, has gained enormous significance as this great gathering of Irish political leaders, these conventions were equally significant Uh, and and were as detailed in their discussion of Irish Nationalist Affairs uh, and and should be given equal weight, in in my view.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. That was really interesting. Kieran has, uh, Kieran O'Neill has asked a question as well. I'm just trying to find it here. Um, great talk, to her. I've always thought that the Dublin Convention of 1896 was a bit of a red herring. In among all the more physical force-themed American conventions, it seemed to belong to a totally different tradition. I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Did its overt and more intense Catholicism inform any of the later conventions?
1: It's a, it's a great question because I was also conscious of that, that kind of supposed outlier in in terms of the period that I'm looking at, but then the earlier 1896 convention. Uh, and I must confess, I, I haven't looked at it in as much detail. Um, but I think it suggests, even by the use of the terminology Irish Race Convention, this idea to proffer a, a greater Ireland identity, um, uh, uh, in this case, the the kind of the Home Rule generation, and using it to that effect. Um, and the fact that it took place in Dublin, I think, would perhaps suggest a different uh, modus operandi as well. That it was perhaps for internal, you know, um, United Kingdom purposes in terms of political leverage. Whereas, I think, looking at the later race conventions, the fact that they were held in diaspora communities, I think, again, marked um, they were totemic of this idea that the, the Irish question was now beyond Westminster. That there were fora beyond the Isles, so to speak. Whereby um, Irish nationalist politics was being discussed and projected, but I think it' something I would like to do go go back into the, the details of that convention uh, and explore some of the correspondences, but also some of the differences between them. Thanks.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Of um, course. Uh, another question from Stephanie Rains. Um, thank you, Dara. This is a fascinating talk. Those photographs of delegates staring directly into the camera, which we've talked about already, are really striking. Do you know anything about, um, do you know more about who organised them or where they were seen or
1: published? Um, I can t- I can take the latter part of the question. So those pictures were very often used in Irish-American or Irish-Australian, as it was. In both of those images, newspapers um, when they were reporting about the convention. So the first appeared in the Gaelic American um, newspaper in 1916. And I should uh, uh, allude very briefly, as a as a side a side note, that um, those newspapers, the Gaelic American in particular, um, have been digitized by Villanova University. Uh, it's available. Um, we launched our I launched with Century Ireland yesterday this new Global Archives project which I'm developing, which is trying to promote and um, give greater visibility to these collections. So um, if you follow my Twitter account or Century Ireland, you can find the link to the Villanova's collections of of the Gaelic American and other newspapers. And those images are are, are in those newspapers. So again, used by people like Devoy, Joseph McGarity, to promote this idea of um, unity in Irish American terms, but also the respectability of the Irish race. The Australian Convention, um, that comes from the Sydney uh, Catholic Herald, which is available via Trove, which was formerly uh, a home rule um, mouthpiece. But by the end of 1919, it went along with the convention and basically advocated for Um, self-determination. And again, a very important newspaper to try and communicate ideas about Ireland, not only to the Irish in Australia, but around the world. So I think those newspapers, and if I may say, just I suppose in terms of the Global Archives Project that I'm working on—it's really important. I think that we, we uh, as we get moved to an end of this decade of centenaries, that we don't lose sight of the archival collections which are available around the world and which can totally transform our understanding of of a, of a period of history. Um, I think they offer new perspectives, um, and and you know, I think the integration of the diaspora into the story of the Irish Revolution, notwithstanding modern Ireland, is is one of the great challenges we face as a community uh, moving forward.
0: Good stuff, and I've, I've just put the link into the chat actually there to the Global Irish Revolution, if anybody's interested. Um, a question from a Mobeen Can you say a little more about how race was discussed by different contingencies at various meetings of the Congress? Was there a sense of Irish-born people of colour being included as Irish, or was Irishness consolidated as or folded
1: into whiteness? And that's an excellent question. I think the Race Congress in Paris in January of 2022 is probably the best example to speak to those converging but also conflicting views of how race uh, was understood, but also how race um, was um, constructed. Um, certainly, there were some representatives, for example, from the United States who did attend. Um, I think they left America, the Congress in Paris, I think they left America before the, the treaty had been signed. And uh, so ended up in Paris anyway, despite the misgivings of their leaders. But they were keen to emphasize, as were people like Harry Boland, who had spent time in America, that, you know, people of color and also other um, races, such as um, the Jewish people, uh, Chinese and so on, and other ethnic groups, have been great supporters of, of, of Ireland in America and should be involved in some of these issues. Whereas um, in Britain in particular, where... Uh, Irish nationals were very protective and defensive and insecure about their uh, connections to um, the Irish nation and so on, and ideas of citizenship. They were opposed vehemently to the idea of anyone other than those of Irish birth or descent, um, and by default, therefore, Irish uh, white people in in those contexts essentially uh, being included. Um, So there are tensions ongoing. They're not developed to the extent that I would have been interested to find out more. In the race congress, um, they're kind of left in abeyance because it was clear that they wouldn't resolve those issues at that event. But it's clear that there are issues regarding race between different communities. And I think the experiences of the South African organizers attest to that, where they say um to some of the Irish delegates that we have experienced that we have to tell you about, which you are not otherwise familiar. So there's an interesting clash of cultures uh there to a certain extent. And there are references in some of the Um, comments, you know, the Michael Hayes comment, I will not be lectured to by a Brazilian from Ireland. There are suggestions there, of course, of, you know, not only racial hierarchies, but hierarchies of civilization, this idea of the clash of civilizations and so on, which are there encoded in some of that language. Um, So it's worth certainly exploring those tensions uh, again.
0: Great. Um, interesting. Thank you, Moving for that question. Um, there's a couple of other similar-ish questions, um, but I'm just going to ask pa- Patrick Mumm's first question. How far were the international Irish organisations during the Revolutionary period based on earlier organisations by the Irish Party support groups? The United Irish League, for example, has sister bodies in Britain, the US and Australia and perhaps elsewhere.
1: Yeah, it's an excellent question because of course that, that, that has to be borne in mind. While we do think of kind of the Westminster centricity of John Redmond, even though he was the leader of the Irish race, there, there was uh certainly an attempt to broaden the scope of the Home Rule movement. Uh and um, you know, most most publicly the those movements supported the Home Rule campaign in financial terms, um, you know, for electoral contests, supporting salaries and so on. Um, but Redmond and his brother went on extensive tours of of Australia and Parnell and T.P. O'Connor and Redmond went to Mm -hmm. Canada, notwithstanding the United States. So they did have connections there. Um, In many ways, it speaks to the British world, which some British scholars have talked about, which was kind of a, there's, there are kind of conflations of ethnicity, whiteness, you know, in those dominion contexts, which um, I think the Irish Self-Determination Leagues and The Sinn Féin movement sought to transcend to a certain extent. So I think they were aware, there were certainly some continuities of membership, undoubtedly. um, But the stated political objectives were different, the global ambitions were different. And I think the idea of connecting together as a global network was perhaps um, original, uh, certainly in terms of comparative terms to the Home Rule movement. um, They were the, the Self Determination League. But the Irish Race Convention, more specifically, was explicit, as I've stated in my presentation, about connecting to other organisations and seeing themselves in those transnational terms uh, and using the conventions as a propaganda tool to convince um, made, you know policymakers around the world. Um, and, and I think it's important as well to recognise that, for example, the example of Australia, wherein they used the Race Convention in late 1919 to shrug off the kind of idea that home rule was still the stated political objective is important, uh, that these were events which um, were used to make a public declaration of of support for a specific political goal. So I think they mark kind of breaking points in some respects between the old home rule politics and the new politics of, of republicanism.
0: Yeah, and Patrick ma- makes a really good point well so that De Valera himself is sometimes the target of racialized abuse references to his Spanish ancestry and rumors that he was Jewish, etc. So... Um, yeah. so- so that I think I'll leave the final question, which you kind of alluded to a little um, to Kieran O'Neill, and then we'll we'll leave it at that because you've given so much of your time today. Um, Melbourne and Buenos Aires are both places where hyphenated Irish communities made serious money through either settler colonialism or via the informal empire. In other words, to what extent is our global influence in the 1919-21 period simply a byproduct of our colonial distribution and our advancement of European imperialism?
1: That's an excellent question. Again, um, I think that's a, a, a really important point that, you know, those were, um, if not, you know, metropoles of empire were certainly nodes of imperial um, agency um, and undoubtedly Irish men and women were involved in, you know, um, the kind of processes of um, and mechanisms of of imperial control and imperial um, influence. Um, I mean, the Catholic Church has been called this kind of Irish Empire in some respects, but it had very difficult relationships with uh, the issue of Irish nationalism and the issue of empire. And in some respects, De Valera, sorry, De Valera, Freudian slip, uh, Mannix is uh, an outlier in that respect. Um, Niamh Gallagher has made this point that actually the Irish Catholic bishops during the First World War were advocates of an imperial loyalty, whereas Mannix was the um, antagonist of that imperial loyalty. So I think, there's certainly um, the Irish nationalists that I've been talking about are overlaying extant imperial networks, however explicit, in developing these transnational connections. It's something I'd love to explore further, um, again, going deeper into those study of those individual countries and the idea of their transnational connections. Um, and I think certainly Ciarán's point, you know, um, alludes to the kind of the nuances, but also the complexities um, and the, the inherent contradictions that we face as Irish historians when kind of addressing issues of empire that at one, at one point uh, or at one in one specific place, whether it's Melbourne and Buenos Aires, we are at once addressing issues of empire, nationalism, diaspora, and as you suggested, Georgina, class and gender. So the intersection or the intersectionalities of those various identities makes this subject just all the more fascinating. Um, I mean, it's it's really fascinating and you really brought it to light for us
0: here today. Um, and I just want to thank everybody for the questions. I think the questions will be available to you after as well, Dara, because there's one or two I didn't get to. Um, and to thank you in particular for the amount of work um, and travel, obviously, that's gone into creating um, this research and presenting this research here and elsewhere. Um, and to thank all the attendees and to remind everyone that the seminar for next week will be starting a a couple of minutes after four o'clock as well um and that you can register through the long room hub i just don't have the details with me at the moment um um just to say thank you very much to dara um and to thank the hub is a community for their attention stamping towards the history of the we'll time year library as well as being haired the hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created start, by Coral The Hub is about impact. The hub is, about impact.
1: the hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism
0: to the next ten years.